0: Well, today I'm very pleased to be sitting here and talking to Kim Hastreiter, who is the founder of Paper Magazine in New York. After moving to New York in the 1970s, Kim then went on to found Paper Magazine in 1984. It's become New York's independent magazine that covers and discovers cultural movements, and paper focuses on fashion, design, pop culture, nightlife, art and film. Labelled a curator of culture and a champion of cultural diversity and equality across all disciplines, Kim has a maverick second sense of discovering exceptional future talent. Kim also advises brands of all sizes on how to stay relevant and desirable in today's changing times. So, sitting here with you, Kim, in your office, I'm surrounded by the paraphernalia and magazine covers of of several decades since 1984 when you started. Now, all the issues must paint together an incredible picture of New York's cultural history moving through the times. Do you think things are as exciting now as they have been before?
1: Oh yes, absolutely. There's nothing I hate more than people saying oh it used to be better because it, it's not it didn't used to be better. It's always as incredible. It's just um you just have to open your eyes and find where it's incredible. It's never incredible in the same way. But um there's always radicals, there's always an underground, there's always, you know, an underbelly, there's always invention and innovation. But it's, you know, it's not cookie cutter, it's not the same, so people tend to expect everything to stay the same, and I love change. Change excites me, I love to, ch- I love to pull the rug out of things, so um, I'm always up for it.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a subject I think that all creatives have to be open-minded to, mm-hmm. and it seems like you are a magnet to, uh, to, to these kind of uh, forces that are at work. Um, We've just been looking at some of your uh, early covers, mm-hmm. and uh, it's got a wonderful aesthetic that's evolved over the over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, was this a, 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 a this aesthetic? Was it a conscious decision when you started out, and how it's evolved over time?
1: Well, it's funny because um, we've always been poor, so every. Everything we've ever done has always been attached to being poor, in a way, because so every decision, being poor always made you become more inventive and um, dictated your format, dictated your creative direction, dictated your printing, dictated um, everything. So when you have no money, you know, we started out, we didn't have money to print more than 16 pages um we each put in a thousand dollars i think and there were four of us who started it and um we thought a 16 page magazine is so wimpy that we thought maybe let's make it into a poster so that instead of cutting it it would be this giant fold-out poster and be more interesting of course we didn't have money to print color so we made it super graphic black and white And um, so everything was always dictated. Our formats were always dictated based on, like, having no money. What can we do to, like, make it amazing? And we actually um, were super early. We were beta testers for Apple. We were super early computer people because of lack of money. Um, My partner, David, is uh, like a geek geek type, gadget type. So he was always into early, early computers, and we were always – he always – Found out about stuff before, you know. We found out if we got a computer, we wouldn't have to do typesetting, and it would save us all this money at the typesetter because then you could just um, make all your corrections. Because we used started out with like typesetting and waxing things. I mean, it was very, you know, razor blades and cut and paste and yeah, I remember it well. Yeah. So and that was very costly. And then you'd go to the printers, and you have to bring the pictures there, and they'd have to strip them in and. So, you know, my partner kept saying, oh, there's these new things, that this, this new invention that where you could just go and you don't have to strip in the pictures. They have these scanners and you can scan and whatever. So we figured it out. We got our first Apple. It's right over here. You can see it in my office. And um, just to save money, it was always about like being able to do more with less. And so because we we're creative people, we always thought of great ways of doing that. So I don't know if that answered your question. Well, it does. It, it does
0: because I think that um, you know uh, the the idea of um, scarcity, not having yeah. the resources to do things, I think is always a great way of kind of uh, for creatives to yeah. to think originally and be very resourceful. And the other
1: thing I I learned from that is that super creative people and even like famous people, people who um, who are in the design world, art directors, they love a challenge of doing something for nothing. You can go to the most famous architect and say, I want to build a house for $5,000, and they might do it for you just because of the challenge. Because if you're a designer, that's like a really interesting design challenge to you. And so we kind of operated like that, well, with artists and with designers. like we, I really care about design, and I have... And I, you know, I come from the art world, so I am like an artist myself and I know good design from bad design. So I went to like super high level design people and they would all do it on the side, do it for fun because it was, their resources were so limited and the format was so weird and that they would just do it for no money. Everyone did everything for no money. I mean, Robert Maplethorpe shot fashion for no money for us, you know. So I got amazing people to do, also creative people to do things for no money by allowing them to have freedom and to let them do things that they would never be allowed to do anywhere else. So that was my other... Because I realized, like, why would you edit someone who's a great artist or, like, someone who's a great thinker? I don't want to tell that person... But to do i want that person to come up with an amazing idea and then let them do it mm. that's the whole problem when you take talent and you start like diddling with it is that it weakens it mm. so if you get great talent and you don't diddle with it you get strong work so as an editor i'm a good editor i love talent i love art i love artists and creative people we would just gather these people and i'd maybe help You know, I'm good at like talking to them and figuring out what their passions are, and maybe figuring out something that they would love to do. But once we figure that out, let them do it.
0: That sense of of empowering the artist to just be free within the kind of the uh, the brief that you set them Mm -hmm. is a uh, a wonderfully stimulating thing, I I think, and. Probably is the reason, as you rightfully say, why you've got such a, such fresh work. Mm-hmm. So I want to uh, move on and talk about um, the, some of the things that you've seen and the cultural movements you know that mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the paper magazine has has witnessed mm-hmm. that have maybe started at a grassroots level mm-hmm. and have then filtered through into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Is there an example of when this has re- that has it, happened that's struck you as a very powerful moment mm-hmm. in in paper's history?
1: Mm-hmm. Really, the first movement that we you know our light bulb went on like holy shit light bulb went on was um the hip-hop movement because um which started in new york in really in the late 70s and early 80s um in the south bronx and it was started by someone named africa bambada who was a kind of dj he wasn't really a dj they called him a uh mc MC, he was an mc and he would have these parties uptown. And some of the kids from downtown, there was a big punk movement going on downtown, you know, in the 70s in New York. And um, some of the kids in that movement went uptown and like saw what was going on. And they came back and they were like, oh my God, you have to see what's going on up there and what they look like and what they're dressing like. And these, how, you know, they wear big Mercedes-Benz medallions and these glasses with no glass in them. And they'd have Adidas and big that's. The looks were amazing. The music was amazing. And then they had graffiti. The art was amazing. And I was friends with Keith Haring and this whole crew of downtown artists in those days. And they went up and they started looking at the graffiti art. My friend Charlie Ahern made a movie about it called Wild Style, about all the art on the subways. And then we invited the these people, Africa Bambaataa and his crew, to start coming downtown and see art clubs. So we had this kind of like cultural exchange. And... Um, Bada came into the Mud Club one day and was like blown away. He was like, and then he went back uptown. And was like, oh my god, you should see what these kids are doing down there. And so, some of the hip, some of the uh, graffiti artists like Ramal Z and Lady Pink, like serious South Bronx kids who you know went on the trains and painted the trains in the middle of the night. Came, started coming downtown and met with Keith Haring and met Jean Michel, and they all started making music together. And it was this collaboration. And Bambada, <laughs> I'll never forget, he he wrote, we asked him to write our uh, like a DJ column for us. So he would just pick his favorite songs. And we were walking around the East Village with him one day and he had this thing called, uh, what was it called? Uh, Zulu Nation. And I brought him around the East Village and I'll never forget, he went to the ice cream truck and bought like a ice cream cone. And then he went and bought a hot dog and he took the hot dog and put it in the ice cream cone and said, punk rock. <laughs> I'll never forget he did that. I laughed so hard. And he he was just loving the punk rock kids and we all became friends and this thing happened and then Debbie Harry, there was this club called the Mud Club that we all went to and sometimes like the kids from the South Bronx would come, we'd invite them to do their scratching and Debbie Harry did this song with Fab Five Freddy from, you know, uptown. So about about the whole thing and then even vivian westwood i remember because that was when vivian and malcolm and they were doing their whole like music and art everything was colliding in those days and she became very interested in it and i had met her when i was at my previous job so she asked me to introduce her to keith herring and to she got very interested in this whole hip-hop and she did the bow wow wow which was her, um, she did the Buffalo girl, yeah. Gals. It was yeah. like a collection that she did. Yeah. And I introduced her to Keith. She wanted Keith to do the, like, fabric for her. So I hooked that up, and they, she kind of did a hip-hop collection, but it was her version, kind of this crazy, I don't know if you know that collection. It was called, um, it was with Bow Wow Wow, and it was called Buffalo Gals. Yeah, and they the did Buffalo Gals. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but it was with the big sneakers and the big laces, and it had a hip-hop vibe to it, but it was still you know it was different she was amazing so that was just and then suddenly run dmc and all these you know the hip hop thing started kind of exploding and it was still really early and um i'll never forget just the baggy jeans and the clothes and then it was just like a big movement that was all around New York and it was all around downtown. And it just kind of, and I just kept watching it grow. And then Keith Herring all of a sudden hit the jackpot and started becoming famous. So all the, those graffiti artists he brought with them and they started traveling the world and he was collaborating with them. And the music kind of started getting played and then MTV started. It just all kind of snowballed and it was the beginning of hip hop, you know, and, and it really affected you know, it affected art, it affected music, it affected style, I mean, how many pairs of like big Adidas sneakers and how many pairs of baggy jeans like sold after that, how it turned into this, you know, billion dollar thing and we just watched it happen and I me mean, my partner and I and David, we were kind of like, "Oh my God, and I and Madonna was like involved also Madonna was there like dancing. there was a little Latino version of it, and she was friends with Keith mm. before she was famous, so then she started getting really famous, so we just kind of watched this. it was surreal, and then we saw and then even even in the brands like Absolute vodka, I was hooking up Keith with Michelle Rue and he was like kind of supporting it and jean michel and Andy Warhol was a little on the sideline. Andy wanted to get into it. He wasn't part of it, but then he finally like glommed onto it, and we were all like, "Oh shit!" Like when he came on, we were like, "That's the end of that," he was like kind of already over. Yeah. And uh, but he wanted to keep, you know, he wanted to keep relevant, mm. so he kind of hooked up with the young kids like Kenny Scharf and.
0: Well, that, that's interesting, I mean, talking about how something so established would come in and then to legitimize kind of like a movement, which probably was... Just well, he always exploding. liked the kids,
1: Andy, and he yeah. was, he was, it was kind of like, you know, interview had gone through this kind of Republican stage, and I don't know, he had gotten shot, and it was just kind of like aging, oh. and we were, paper was so fresh, you know, and um, he just... Saw that as a way, and all the kids worshiped Andy Warhol, so it was easy for him, yeah, so he just kind of befriended Keith and Kenny Sharf and all those kids, and um started hanging out with them and I'll never forget keith herring's very first show was in a basement of a church, and it was just for his friends, and i'll never forget like Andy walked in, and we were all like. Ugh. It's over. (laughs) This is over. So, and it was not a way, it wasn't over for them. For Keith, it was just starting because then he just went into a big gallery He got really famous. You know, all this Mm. stuff happened. It
0: became globalized at the beginning of the globe. But Um, that was
1: like a a movement that we saw actually, oh my God, this is like turned into and Madonna turned huge and Keith turned huge. These people that were like, it turned huge. And it was like, became this big economic thing. And we were like, oh my God. So,
0: so when this is happening, when, when, when these kind of cultural um, movements are happening, I mean, you, you have a reputation of being a curator of culture, mm-hmm. and you have a skill that identifies people and talent that is emerging. And um, what I'm interested in is, is how you personally feel about identifying talent. Is it something that's instinctual? Do you just mm-hmm. kind of see truffle it? And you, and you know it. You're a truffle hunter. i
1: a pig with a good nose. <laughs> yeah, I smell it. I smell. I, I always say I'm really bad with money. If you put me in a room with 50 billionaires and one artist, I will, like a heat-seeking missile, find the artist in five seconds and talk to them all night and ignore all the people with money. That's just how I am. I'm bad at money, but I'm good at talent.
0: So who's inspiring you at the moment?
1: Oh, God, there's so many people. Um, some chefs are inspiring. I love, like, you know, I'm really into, like, this whole crazy, like, food culture, food movement that's Mm -hmm. going on I love an artist named Tauba Auerbach she's like my big inspiration who I she's my favorite artist who I just kind of I can't I kind of discovered her I guess but she's I'm obsessed with her work I think she's like a genius and she inspires me more than anything
0: what is it about the food movement that's uh, that's interesting
1: well you? you know I it was just Because it's cultural. It's a cultural movement. So, like, after hip-hop, like, that just, we were kind of like, oh, my God. And then you start smelling something else. Like, like 10 years down the road, we started smelling this thing in California that was going on. And it was, like, more, it was really different from the hip-hop movement, but it was uh, attached to, like, action sports it was attached to skate and surf mm. and it was in suburban rather than urban it was attached to white suburban people as opposed to black urban people um, but it was kind of in orange county and we were tipped off because there was like art coming out of it and music and design a lot of design coming out of it and these interesting companies that were um There was this thing called ASR show, which was action, it was like a surf show, a big surf and skate show. And then there was this like underground show that opened that we heard about. And it was when um, all these people were doing things with pot leaves and it was very subversive and we love anything subversive. So we went out there to check it out because we kept hearing about it and hearing a buzz, kind of like underground buzz. And it was this amazing movement that was happening. So we got in really early and we like started writing about it and celebrating it. And, you know, it turned out also turned into a huge, another huge movement. It was the early, early skate kids turned into the beautiful loser school. I don't know if you know about the beautiful loser school of artists, a big major school of artists that are now in the major museums that, you know, spawned Banksy many years Mm -hmm. later, but spawned it was almost like connected to the hip-hop. It was a There was a thread, not to the hip-hop, but to the graffiti, but it was young, 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 and it was Southern California and San Francisco. Barry McGee, Phillip, Chris Johansson, Margaret Kilgallen, I don't know if you know any of these names, but they're major artists. I uh, have a lot of their work. Espo, this is Chris Johansson. I mean, a lot of the skateboards are from those people. But... That was a movement we got super involved with. That was as big as hip hop, and it really also had its own style. It had its own music. It had its own, and it was sport oriented instead of, like I guess, music oriented. So that was like in the 90s, and then then the next movement we were really super involved with was really like the digital movement. Because in early 90s, we were also on um, doing bulletin boards. We were involved with the, you know, about the well. Yeah. Yeah, so we were involved, super interested in digital kind of like uh, content. And there was a community called The Well that was like the first radical community on the internet that was based in Northern California. And we used to lurk there, but then a, a little, it was very, very, it was like older and kind of hippies or yippies, like real radical older people who started it. They were the people, first people to be, use the internet for like communication rather than for the government. They kind of like hijacked the American internet and they were the, like almost the founders of, I know the founder of the internet isn't from London, but it's from England, but they were kind of like these really important people in American internet history.
0: And they made it theirs.
1: Yeah. And it was before any browsers or anything, it was all DOS and, you know, you had to type this crazy stuff in, but it was, it was super political, super radical super left-wing, like, talking about, um, you know, sharing things for free and doing things illegally. And so there was, like, a little side thing that split off from that that came to New York called Echo. It was, like, the New York version of the well. Because New York was so different, they they got us involved in it. So we did, like, all these conferences. We got really involved in that culture. And then we realized... There, we became we were also beta testers. I said for Apple for for Quark we were beta tester when Quark came along we were like oh my God that was like because then we could you know we could at the same time we're doing the magazine but then we had to always figure out how to do more for less money so that enabled us to go straight to film and to do our own imaging and to do our so we learned all that just for economic reasons so we were getting rid of all the costs of production. By going, you know, doing everything digitally, and we did it really early. So on the, you know, on the other hand, that was really my partner's expertise. He was really all into that, and um, and then all the people. We just kept thinking we have front row at all the fashion shows. We know everything that's going on. Imagine if we had our own little magazine. We could do it daily on the internet because we we have all the access to the information. We just it's another outlet, and we don't even have to print it. We don't even have to pay for printing. So we started doing this. And then when um, Netscape was coming, we went to this like beta test and we heard about it. We're like, oh my God, we could make our own website that you could show pictures on. It was when the first browser came. So we were really involved in that. And then when that happened, we decided we were going to build leave echo and we're going to build our own website in-house and we got this crazy fucking art director meanwhile we had all these different art directors all really interesting like after first was lucy sisman who did those original posters she's really talented and then was richard Pendicio. i don't know if you know him he's like pretty famous now. know he was our second art director and then the third art director was as crazy as a loon but really talented woman who's super cyber named bridget Desocio. And she designed this amazing website for us. And we did it. We built it. We did everything in-house. And we just did it ourselves. We're completely DIY. We do everything ourselves. So that's how we started that. So we started doing that. <laughs> Meanwhile, we're still like doing this crazy magazine and not making any money ever. We're always completely poor. We did it in my house for like four years. And then finally we got an office and we had to steal the electricity off the street. My mother, you know, did I mean, I had to teach my mother how to kite cheques. She didn't even know what kiting a cheque was. I mean, it was intense.
0: So, it's interesting you say that uh, you never made any money. Um And therefore, oh, a current, like a, it's, from a business point of view, it, it's, uh, it's always maybe been maybe more of a love and a project but uh, but the impact that you've made um, as we've just been hearing You made other
1: people a lot of money
0: well that and uh you've exposed a lot of people to kind of uh, you know the wider world and, and made successes of them and facilitated that so so that ties into the theme of these podcasts because it's titled "Challengers and icons and uh, it's a celebration of um, the challenges that burst onto the scene and change the way things are and uh, the icons who've reached a point of maintaining a certain sense of um, timeless love with the the people that respect them. Now, I put it to you that uh, you started out as a challenger. In many ways, you still are a challenger. You're championing that spirit as we speak and the things that you're talking about. But I would also say that you're kind of like almost like an icon of challenger thinking and uh, facilitating challenger behavior. How do you feel about that?
1: I don't think of myself that way at all because I just am a worker bee. You know, I'm not like... I always work really hard. I get my fingers dirty. So we're like in it. We're in the weeds. So I don't ever... I mean, I guess the older you get... I'm old now. So like, you know, I do sometimes get taken aback when people write articles or like, you know, The New Yorker did an article. It was kind of like a shock to me. I was like, oh my God. But it's just about... If you just throw spaghetti on the ceiling you know long enough you're gonna stick at some point so that's you know you just keep doing what you do and i'm stubborn and tenacious and we also like believe so strongly in what we do we will never stop so if you really have that tenacity eventually people are going to notice and like amazing thing that happened to us, to me, the big, like, amazing, most amazing thing in the whole world that happened to us is after all these years of, like, struggle and doing this and and following our noses, doing everything intuitively, we started this kind of agency because I started noticing all these companies would always come to us for help because they couldn't didn't know how to talk to people in the right way, in the right language. People that they wanted to, you know, fall in love with their products or their brands. And so I would always in the old days I would always say, Well, buy sixteen pages and I'll tell you how to do it. You know, so they would buy all these pages and that's in a sense I was doing marketing my whole life in the magazine for my for my advertisers. But then something shifted with the internet when that whole you know, everything started to shift. And I saw that brands didn't really want to only buy pages anymore. So brands started coming to me and asking me to do stuff for them. We started this agency just because brands were asking us and they didn't want to buy pages, so I had to charge them. Mm. So we said, well, let's just start another division and we'll just charge people. So, um, But what I'm saying is the big revelation that happened is that I realized, because the reason why I started doing what I did is because when I didn't have a job, I tried to go work at Condé Nast, because I have editor experience, and I tried to do what I do there, and it was like a nightmare. It was, I had these amazing ideas, and then they would take my ideas, and then they would like silo all these different parts of it and give them away, have this person do that, and then spend like, a gillion dollars doing it, and the result would be unrecognizable and shit. And I took my name off it. I was horrified. I was upset
0: because I had these
1: great ideas. But And I was like, well, I could do this for like $100. (laughs) Give me $100 and I'll do it myself. And it would be amazing. But instead, they have this, and it was corporate America. It was really the time of in the 90s, early 90s, late 80s, when all my peers, or was like, I'm anti-corporate. I don't believe in corporate, how you do, how cor- creative, I think corporate culture kills creativity. So I, I learned that when I went to try and work at Conde Nast, and then I was like, I will never work for one of these companies. I don't care if I'm poor, but I will. Ne- you can never do something great in a, when it's structured like this. And my peers were all finding the same thing out in a way, Maybe it was just our headset or we were children of the sixties or whatever reason. But, you know, my friends who were musicians were starting record labels and my friends who were in film were doing like indie film. But indie was kind of the word of my generation. We were yeah. indie. We we invented the indie. Yeah. We were one there weren't a million magazines. We were like one of the first indie magazine. My friends started, um, what was the name of the record? I'm trying to think of the you know, Jim Jarmish is my friend and like uh What was the record label in seattle i forget that i used to know those people that started that first indie record label and it was just indie we were all doing indie and we were doing indie mac because none of us wanted to ever have a job in one of those companies so that was my but my i keep going back to this revelation i've had lately is that in this new paradigm of the 21st century what happened because of the internet is that 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 corporate culture doesn't work anymore for the corporations, it doesn't work anymore because everything's gotten small and everything in a way has become India maverick and small because the internet made everything small. It made all these small communities and, you know, the authenticity thing that you're sick of hearing about, yeah. but so, and when I started looking, I was like, oh my God, you should just do it how we're doing it, but they don't know how to do it like if you did, you could save so much money because the big companies are all overspending because they have all the silos and they have all the process. It's like a giant monster and they can't be nimble. They can't talk like humans. They can't use the internet. They can't use social media because they don't know how to do it because they need like five weeks to vet one tweet from lawyers, you know. So everything that I always was now is what is going to solve Big giant companies' problems, and that's to me like the most shocking revelation. When I realized that, like, oh my god, they have to become like us, and I don't know how they can do it, but we're kind of the we we're in this amazing position. Like, what, how we do things is how that's how it has to be done now. How I've always done things. So this
0: this death of corporate culture, um, which is. Um, something we're talking about now, and uh, is it well? This is this is in in, a, in very much the sense that you, you you were quoted as saying corporate culture is no longer valid in the twentieth right. century That's for true. the reasons you just, you've yeah, just it's defunct. And now you're saying it's really
1: s- scary for corporations because you know you can't hire McKinsey. That is not how you solve problems. Mm. You can't do that in the twenty first century.
0: So your advice to these multinationals. Is to be To
1: pretend like you're poor, just like spend no money and mm. just do everything with ideas.:
0: It's one thing which frustrates me, which is and it's something I call the great corporate innovation swindle. I see all this money being spent on so-called innovation projects. And the output is, is, is zero compared to the money that's being spent. And, so the uh,
1: only way I think corporate corporations can survive like huge corporations is if you have a really maverick leader. Or like what I call a benevolent dictator, someone like a person, a human who's going to be like a dictator, mm. a maverick genius leader, because it, like a consensus or like, um, groupthink, it's not going to cut it. It doesn't cut it.
0: Well, maybe there's hope with the, uh, with the cultures that, that, that you're seeing kind of coming up from the grassroots at the moment. Maybe these are going to be the CEOs of the yeah. future.
1: Well, it's certainly going to be different. Yeah, so I, I'm sure it's going to all be solved in like 20 years because it's going to all be these kids, of course. They're not going to do it the old way. But it's just right now we're caught in that middle stage where I think if you, these companies have, they're, they're like fighting for their lives, some of these companies, in every industry. Mm. it's In every industry. In publishing industry, they're fighting for their lives. And you know, like everything I've done in published, all of a sudden my paradigm's like working because we've figured out, because we're really quick to change. We love to change. We throw everything out the window, but it's really hard to change a really big, like, you know, concrete structure that's been in place for a hundred years. How do you change that? It's a big, tough challenge. I mean, I feel sorry for them. I don't know how I don't have solutions. I wish I had solutions, but you really have to put some dynamite under it and blow it up. Yeah, I mean, I, I
0: think that the uh, you know, corporate pace is set by the uh, the leadership. Yes. And if the leadership is uh, constrained or risk-averse... Yeah, risk-averse. Yeah, risk um, ...then you are going yeah. to have risk-averse yeah. um, uh, culture. That
1: is that is the worst thing right now, is to be risk-averse and to be afraid of change, because you'll die. So so talking
0: about fear and failure and... and, and uh, which is a theme uh, that's embedded within these, these, these interviews. Um, can you recall a time when uh, you had to overcome a fear of failure? I mean, in many respects, you've given me lots of stories about it already. So, but I've but always failed. So
1: We've never had anything, so anything that could happen was always like a huge plus. So I was like, we're, we're like on the bottom of the barrel. So we're like, you know, we never had anything to lose. So that's, uh, it's really like, we're lucky, you know, if you have nothing to lose.
0: The only way is forwards. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: then you have to just jump off the cliff all the time because you have nothing to lose. I mean, I must say, I, I will say one thing is that for like 25 years, I just was financially, I'm not a business person, but I was really good at not going out of business. I knew how to not, and it was like, don't spend more than you bring in. It's really simple, you know? So because my business, you know, I'm not a good business person. I don't know how to make money, but I know how to not go out of business by not spending more than I bring in. So for 25 years, I had my feet on the brakes and like, you know, my hand on the wallet closed and would not spend money and knew how to like stay in business. And um, I guess the fear for me, the fear is like all of a sudden, all of a sudden we, our business paradigm is like, own we're like growing we grew 100% last year so I don't know now I don't know what the fuck to do because (laughs) I can't do that all I know how to do is stay the same and not go out of business but I don't know how to spend money to grow my company or to get bigger so that's my fear is but it's all about, and I remember I asked Dan Wyden this once. I love Dan Wyden. I, was, I said, how did you do it? Because he's such a normal guy. And I was like, he has all these employees, like 900 employees and a million offices. Mm. He said, you just have to find amazing people. Mm. And um, so I, I definitely have found some amazing people that are helping me in all these, you know, you have to know what you don't know. Mm. And you have to find amazing people.
0: That's a great bit of can advice. Do that. Yeah. So let's just talk about you know where we are right now in, in terms of the um, the publishing indus- industry. Yeah. Because we see many magazines. You've mentioned it already. Yeah. Are suffering. Yeah. Um, we're in changing times. Publishing companies. Yeah. Publishing companies. Are just uh, many industries. Yeah. Um, but paper seems to have moved seamlessly into embracing the digital world, as you've been talking mm-hmm. about. You were there mm-hmm. at the beginning, and and um, and and now you're sort of moving. Know, very well into digital media, how do you think this shift has affected your creative evolution as a mm-hmm. as a brand?
1: Well, I think as a publisher, we aren't a magazine anymore we're not a magazine in a sense we have changed the whole definition of what we are. We are now we're not an agency I think there's you have to understand that there are going to be these new uh, new and There's gonna be things that we don't have words for yet, that we don't have labels on yet, kinds of companies that are gonna be new. And that's what I think we're treading on. We are a content-based communication company. Like we are powered by this little magazine, but we are not only a magazine published. That is a tiny part of what we do, but it's the biggest part of the power of what we do. Gives us our juice. That's our gas. You know, gives us our intel. It gives us our access. It gives us our um, you know insights. Yeah, Yeah. and we have like this amazing community that we've built over 30 years of creative talent. And it's really interesting. One, our particular one. There's other publishing. There's other people who are doing similar things, but our demographic is a is a unique one in that it's not only one age it doesn't age out like you can um we have 50 year olds but we have like the 17 year olds it's kind of like it's a psychographic our our people are culture vultures who are like you know rabidly they want to know everything and they want to like do it first and they want and there's always going to be those type of people Um, So that's this community. And because we were um, kind of always very early on in these movements, we have a lot of respect from, like, we never sold out. We never, like, we usually get it right. So we have a lot of trust in the different... And we're not just a fashion magazine or just a music magazine. So it's kind of our strength, also our weakness. Like, we've never been able to be put in a peg. It's not one demographic. It's not... It's much easier if you're a fashion magazine for 18-year-olds, you know what I mean? (laughs) Then you get ads and you know what you're doing, but we're like, it's more of a psychographic of what we are. So it's a little bit more abstract, but it's a very, I always said it's a very important person because these people in our community are the people that make brands. They make brands, that's the insurance policy for brands 15 years out, and they're the ones, if. If, I always knew my, when I told Absolute this, I said, if my friends love Absolute Vodka, in 10 years they're going to love it in Iowa. i promise. And it's true because our people are the ones that start everything. So it's kind of like insurance policy. And always throughout the years, agencies never understood that concept, but CMOs always understand it. So we would always end up going to the brands. And there's always a visionary in every brand that understands that. I said, think of us like CEO Magazine. Our page rates are expensive, and CEO Magazine doesn't have a huge circulation. But I'll bet you want to get to those people if you have a Jaguar car or something, you know. Um, well, our readers are like CEO Magazine, it's just a different type of person that a brand should want to get to.
0: Kim, this has been a, uh, a
1: fascinating
0: um, interview. and, and uh, It's the
1: tip of the iceberg.
0: <laughs> it's the tip of the iceberg. We could talk for hours. And, uh, <laughs> in many respects, um, as a designer, when I, I, I left art school in 1984, and I sort of progressed in the last you know, years in between, um, listening to you tell your stories has been a, almost like a reflection of a lot of the things that I could see happening from where I was in London and experiencing one way or the other. It's been a fascinating um, conversation and uh, okay. i just want to say thank you very much very thank inspirational you. thank you and uh, i think i'm looking forward to seeing all these uh, maverick leaders kind of uh, take their place in uh, in the world mm-hmm. of, of brands and corporate culture and making it a far more exciting place to be thank you very much
1: appreciate your coming welcome to new york